behind. Mr. Davin Heinbuck, a lifelong muskie angler who has absolute incredible punch list of accomplishments um, with the muskie community. So, Davin, thank you so much for doing this today. We're so pumped, and thanks for taking the time out, and welcome to the show. All right. Thank you both. It's my pleasure. Frank, did you get a chance, I'm sure you did, uh, to look at the list of things he had sent us in terms of topics of discussion and also stuff he's accomplished? Pretty impressive. Honestly, another dream guest that sent us an awesome bio. And but like total disclosure, uh, Davin and I hung out a lot during the Muskie Odyssey, and um, Davin obviously comes highly recommended by the community. So I've been, you know, Chris, you know, I've been uh, pushing hard to uh, book Davin, and it's been it's been tough. And you know, with the hiatus we were on recently before we we did the the shift over to uh, to this family and. Uh, um, yeah. it's been a bit of a, of a grind, but you know what we, we, but we all found time on, on the weekend and, and hope to, I know we're going to have an awesome discussion. So I'm, I'm stoked right now. And I, I, I just, I can't wait to get at it. So, da- so Davin, like you're, you talk about, or you, you tell us about how you're in water resources coordinator and a conservation authority. What is your background? Like, what is your professional, uh, you know, um, what are you doing right now that's related to the muskie community? Is it are you just related to the muskie community from your volunteering component, or is your profession actually linked with that? Yeah, for sure. So my my career as a water resource coordinator with the Conservation Authority is really it's it's separate from the work I've been doing with Muskies Canada, but there's been a lot of overlap. So I. I primarily work with water quantity management. Uh, one of my primary roles is flood forecasting and warning. So are you like, are you managing in terms of the entire um, like infrastructure and development or you're specifically related to the conservation authority in, in terms of habitat and fisheries? And what's the, like, what's the specific there? Yeah. So my, my role as water resource coordinator is uh, dealing mostly with water quantity. So the I'm primarily involved with flood forecasting and warning, uh, groundwater, uh, drought response, and also uh, drainage. But then I also, a big part I still maintain some involvement with is, is the fisheries and the biology side of things. So I, I, I'm still very active in, in fish sampling. And we do a lot of electrofishing, uh, fish seining, fike nets, things like that uh, for various different studies and programs. Now, the Conservation Authority has a number of other programs that that we use for floodplain management being uh, you know, regulating development in floodplains, um, stewardship, outreach, education, uh, water quality, a number of other things that I don't get involved with personally. Um, stick basically the water quantity side of things. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, like, are you looking at how flooding of the watershed affects the habitat of muskies in the area? And like, what are the, some of the effects of that or it's like completely separate and your knowledge and your expertise in this area is also you, you, they're drawing on that for when you're dealing with muskies in another area. Yeah, I, I think the latter is more accurate. Uh, we look at the flood side for us is really the protection of, of uh, loss and life of property, uh, sorry, loss of life and property. So we, um, 
don't look a lot about the impacts on the fisheries are from various flood events, but we do know that these river systems are very dynamic and, and habitat changes with each flushing flow. But the, uh, one thing I will say is we don't have uh, a health or a big population of muskies in either of our rivers. We do have historic populations in the Asable River. The, the muskie side of thing, right, where I volunteer with Muskies Canada it, it, is very much separate, but there's a number of linkages with not just the people, but the ministries and, and the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans that I, I work with. Um, so the work I'm doing with Muskies Canada and the work that I'm doing uh, you know, professionally, there, there is a lot of overlap and benefit of, of both sides of it. Understood. Understood. So, I mean, Frank, I don't know if you want to jump in, but I'd like to look at some of those. I'd like to look at or ask uh, Davin about some of those overlaps and what specifics like, I mean, Again, we, we look at what you sent us, and you have 17 years of volunteering with the, as a national research director for MCI. So, I mean, the list of studies, research, and, and accomplishments in that window, it's probably vast. And maybe if you want to touch on some of the key, key points or key things that our listeners might find real value with. Yeah, sure. If I look back at some of the, the bigger studies and, and, and say, you know, habitat or fisheries work that we've, Muskies Canada has done, um, I could probably speak better to that from a from a muskie's perspective, and you know, going back, I said, 17 years as national research director. Uh, it started off very simple for me that I was managing the angler log program. That position has has really evolved into a lot more, I guess, more structured science and research and support for science and research, uh, to the point where in 2013 we established a science advisory committee. And uh, so I've been chairing that committee since 2013 as well. And that's just uh, this is expanding the role I've had as research director. So in that time, how it works is we would um, solicit requests for proposals for various musky research each year. And it's usually, usually academia that will submit those proposals. And then the science advisory committee would screen those and kind of weigh out the merit of, of the projects based on the priorities established by Muskies Canada and also uh, from the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry with their, their Muskie Management Framework in Ontario, things that align well with that. And then we would uh, select the best projects based on the budget that we have and uh, provide funding towards those. And we've done quite a number. We actually had uh, a few that are in progress from, from last year that will be wrapping up this year and uh, some projects that. Uh, new funding this year and some projects going forward. And I'll maybe if you're interested, I'll talk a little bit later about some of the things that are happening, like the Grand River uh, reintroduction that we're investigating right now. And that's a real interesting, interesting one, Davin, because um, I speak to some of the members on the executive uh, for MCI and uh, everyone seems to be really excited about this project. Yeah. It's, it, it's had a lot of, you know, it's and starts over the years. There's, there was interest 25 years ago to get something going here. But uh, we, I think we have a good team right now. We have the ability, thanks to very successful Odysseys and an Odyssey team, we actually have a little bit more money to start doing things and, and branching out on our own and, and looking at projects and just more money to do more work. And we got uh, a great team right now with three chapters involved. And that's Mississauga, Kitchener, Waterloo, and Hamilton. And uh, we've had Andy Pappas kind of overseeing the, the whole setup of this and getting the discussions back going again. But we're meeting with the necessary people I've spoke with. And this really ties back into the overlap that I have with my day-to-day -day job. Whereas a lot of the contacts that I need to make for this 
Grand River reintroduction, I've worked with these individuals for years already. So I've already got that sort of, you know, established line of communications, which is, is extremely helpful. And uh, so, yeah, we're just working through some of the, we're making sure we have the support right now. And, you know, I, I can get into more details if you want at this point, or we can, we can kind of. Well, I just wanted to step back one, one, one little bit. You talked about the um, volunteer angler diary program. And just for people who might not be, you know, uh, know the specifics of that, can you maybe talk about the importance of that in, in the fishing community or in the muskie community? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this, uh, it's a volunteer angler diary for Muskies Canada members. And it's something we've been doing since uh, the club began in 1978. And what's unique about our angler log program is that it's different than what Muskies Inc. does for their lunge log, for instance, in that we log effort. So when individuals submit logs, we know the, the body of water, the date, the hours or total rod hours, and then the fish caught. Uh, there's some other things that we record as well. But the, the big thing there is that we're recording effort or the catch per unit effort on these muskies. And that's that's what's invaluable for muskie management. Um, and also and there's a lot of you know use by the angler themselves. I mean, lo- keeping logs in general is a very good habit to get into. Um, and... Where it starts getting really impressive over time is when you start accumulating, well, now we're over 40 years, almost 45 years of, of data in the log program. And since we went digital uh, records back in 1991, we've got almost 500,000 hours logged. And oh. that, becomes, that becomes significant. So we have 500,000 hours logged. Uh, we have records on 30,000 muskies caught. Um, the big thing there being the effort to catch those muskies. And... Uh, I think it was five, yeah, 500,000 records that we, that we have or hours logged. So again, very, very significant amount of data. And that data gets more important over time. And what's really good about the log program is we're seeing the ministry using our, our logs now to help make management decisions with uh, size limits, um, seasons, things like that, that uh, when you're looking at the actual management of the muskie fishery. Very cool. Very cool. So, um, yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit about that Grand River project, if you can. Like, Davin, you gave us such a great list. And, Chris, I'm looking at his his bio and, and the list for ideas to talk about. And I want to rip down this list because it's all, like, awesome practical fishing stuff. But I, I do want to hear a little more about the Grand River project. And, uh, you know, the... The organization, Muskies Canada, the organization has undergone a complete overhaul, I'd say, in the last couple of years. And they're such an awesome team in place. I mean, these guys are so impressive. And you know what? They've got great ways to get, uh, you know, more funding. And, and so I, I'm happy to hear that you're saying that everything is kind of opening up. And this is going to be the year where this this project, uh, you know, really, really gets going. But why is this project important? Well, this okay. So there's a bit of history on the on the Grand River. So Ontario's has a policy of basically not introducing muskies at this point into new waters or expanding their range. So if we look at stocking or introductions, we have to really look at them as reintroductions. And the history, if you go way back before all the dams were put in place on the Grand River, muskies were present and they could move freely up and down the Grand River. That's changed uh, construction of dams in the last 150 years. Uh, water quality, uh, you know, the landscape has changed. Muskies are, are, are no longer naturally present above the dams that we know of. But we know that in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, 
tens of thousands of muskie fry were stalked into the Nith River, um, and including where the areas where it meets the, the Middle Grand. And one of the one of the problems that never really took off, as I say, as being successful, is that they were Kawartha strain fish, uh, which are the lacustrian strain that don't adapt well to a riverine system where we get the spotted muskies, for instance, something like the Niagara or, or Lake St. Clair or, or the tributaries of the Great Lakes that that have lived in moving flowing water systems uh, effectively and with pike as well. So there's there are stories, and I, I can tell you that there have been a couple tiger muskies caught in the last few years in the Brantford area, which is interesting because it, it tells you that there's there's still some genetic presence of, of muskies in that portion. So that's, that's kind of why we, we looked at that. It's a little, it's a little more manageable. It's, it's between dams. If you go too far up the Grand River, for instance, you get into uh, more tailwater fisheries for brown trout, things like that. But you've also got um, a lot of good, clean, cold water that moves into the middle Grand through uh, various creeks, like Whiteman's Creek. There's a number of creeks uh, in the, in the area downstream of Cambridge through Brantford that, uh, that do help with the water water quality in that area. So that's kind of the area that we're, we're targeting. We, to go any further on this, we, we're still waiting for some final direction from the Ministry of Natural Resources as to what they might recommend for studies. But we know we're going to have to do a, a habitat suitability study, for one, and just collect some, some background fisheries data to kind of anchor or, or get the support that we need to make decisions going forward. So we're at, we're at the stage now where we've, we haven't had any roadblocks. Everyone's been supportive. The Grand River Fisheries Management Implementation Committee, Muskies Canada, has a seat on that committee, has had a seat on that committee for years. The committee is not active right now uh, just because of the whole COVID thing. They just haven't formally got up and going again. But um, the key members of that committee have all indicated support for going ahead with this. And, and, and that, that includes like uh, the, 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 the heads of the of, of trout and salmon committees. Yeah, there's uh, some individuals from uh, Trout Unlimited, for sure. Um, and I'm not saying Trout Unlimited has endorsed it, but the individuals I've talked to ha- have all been very much aware of, of, of the muskie reintroduction and, and supportive of doing it, but doing it right and, and making, you know, it's done, I, I say, soundly, that the science and the research yeah. is all it, it's, it's in place. So yeah. That's what we have to focus on here. And uh, we're going to be having a meeting with uh, First Nations of the Grand sometime, hopefully mid-July, mid-late July. Because um, we we want and, and need their support and input because they have the historical significance of the you know fish of cultural significance for instance like that and and once we got the partners in place we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna start looking at the habitat and doing some of the background research that needs to get done before we look at okay where do we get our fish how do we raise our fish how do we stock our fish um, it's just getting that data that we need to say that this isn't a waste of time so so Davin the fact that there were resident muskie in the area a long time ago that allows the ministry to um approve the stocking in that area yeah exactly yeah that's and one if of the there tests. was no resident or no proof of resident muskies then they wouldn't allow you to stock that that's right that exactly then you're looking at uh yeah then that, i don't think any i don't know i could be wrong here but in the last 30 years at least 40 years the province has not stocked muskies into any new waters so you've obviously well established that there's a um uh, legitimate uh, history here with the muskie and and all that stuff is has already been approved and accepted. Yeah, and, and yeah, and it sure helps. In the last few years, we have uh, examples of tiger muskies being caught. 
because that tells you right there there's muskies are still imprinted on that system somewhere mm, interesting yeah we'll see we'll see where uh it goes but um we've got a team we're focused we've talked to the people we need to and uh, as far as we're concerned uh we have a moving project just just like a just just a question of that area i mean obviously when you go around tobamori there and you're in georgian bay we all know the muskie populations but what about Sabo Falls and all the way up that uh, coastline there? Uh, do you fish muskie there? Uh, do you have, have you caught muskie in that area? Um, on the Lake Huron side, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some tributaries that do have muskies in them. Um, there are some lake run fish as well that uh, move into some of the major tributaries like in Bruce County. Like uh, the Sogging River is a great example where the, the mus- there's muskies as a population in the lake that move up in the spring, possibly even the fall into the lower portion of the river by Denny's dam. And, uh, they get caught most, mostly incidentals, but there's been people over the years that have actually targeted them out, um, of the river mouths. And every once in a while we, we see muskies get picked up, uh, off areas like King Cardin, Goderich. There's some really big muskies caught in Goderich. And, uh, like I said, in the Sauble river, a little further South where I am, there's, uh, there's, there, there are muskies in the river. And we're seeing more. And what's interesting, we're seeing more and more muskies right now showing up south of, between Grand Bend and Sarnia, along the, the Lake Huron shoreline and uh, areas like Kettle Point. Muskies are back in, spawning at Kettle Point now. Uh, they have been for a few years, but this is a uh, first time in, in decades that muskies have been seen coming back spawning. And we're seeing muskies washing up uh, along the Lake Huron shoreline as well, in, within the watershed I work in. Um, so, so yeah, there's populations there, but I think they're very, they're, they're in pockets and mm. there certainly has to be some movement of fish uh, through the St. Clair system into Southern Lake Huron because, uh, muskies are being caught Certainly. in Southern Lake Huron. Yeah. Port Huron area. Exactly. It's all that. So yeah, there's muskies all around. I don't know much from Tobermory down to about Owen Sound. Me for that area. I don't know much for muskies, but once you get over towards Nottawa Saga, um, you start seeing some muskies again. And then of course you head into... Severn, Honey, and all the way up the, the North Shore, Georgian Bay. Now that's kind of, we talk about Georgian Bay, that's what we're, we're talking about. Very cool. Very cool. That's, uh, it's great to hear that, uh, you know, uh, fish are showing up in these, uh, these fish. I mean, you know, we, we've heard, Chris, we've heard uh, uh, guests on the show talk about musky hunting in, in, in Lake Huron and, and stuff, but you don't, you know, you don't meet a lot of people. And like you said, Davin, a lot of that's incidental catches and stuff like that but you know regardless it's great to hear that people are spawning them spawning i mean that's only good news right yeah and we're seeing you see the same thing in lake erie right you're seeing muskies move um you know there's always been a fair population in the western basin and the extreme east but now you see muskies moving along the, the shoreline of lake erie and establishing populations um or increasing populations in certain areas and and people are catching on to this yeah but that same thing is probably happening in, in lake huron as well um so just Great Lakes fishing is tough. It's tough to get out. It's tough to find a day or pick your day, especially when the winds are mostly prevailing. And and, yeah. and the, the the area, it's immense. So it's like, where do you go, right? And you have one shot at it. So like if you're going out for a week, like a day or whatever, you you know, you're, you're getting into immense waters. And we're talking like from Salvo Beach down to Godridge. That's, that's a huge area or down to Kettle Point. Where would you start? Yeah. Um, yeah. Hi everybody, I'm Angelo Viola. And I'm Pete Bowman. 
Now, you might know us as the hosts of Canada's favorite fishing show, but now we're hosting a podcast. That's right. Every Thursday, Angie and I will be right here in your ears, bringing you a brand new episode of Outdoor Journal Radio. Hmm. Now, what are we going to talk about for two hours every week? Well, you know, there's going to be a lot of fishing. I knew exactly where those fish were going to be and how to catch them, and they were easy to catch. Yeah, but it's not just a fishing show. We're going to be talking to people from all facets of the outdoors, from athletes. All the other guys would go golfing. Me and Garth and Turk and all the Russians would go fishing. To scientists. But now that we're reforesting and letting things free, it's the perfect transmission environment for Lyme disease. To chefs. If any game isn't cooked properly, marinated, or you will taste it. And whoever else will pick up the phone. Wherever you are, Outdoor Journal Radio seeks to answer the questions and tell the stories of all those who enjoy being outside. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What brings people together more than fishing and hunting? How about food? I'm Chef Antonio Maleca, and I've spent years catering to the stars. Now, on Outdoor Journal Radio's Eatin' Wild podcast, Louise, Hooksat, and I are bringing our expertise and Rolodex to our real passion, the outdoors. Each week, we're bringing you inside the boat, tree stand, or duck blind and giving you real advice that you can use to make the most out of your fishing game. You're going to flip that duck breast over once you get a nice hard sear on that breast. You don't want to sear the actual meat. And it's not just us chatting here. If you can name a celebrity, we've probably worked with them. And I think you might be surprised who likes to hunt and fish. When Kit Harrington asks me to prepare him sashimi with his bass, I couldn't say no. Whatever Taylor Sheridan wanted, I made sure I had it. Burgers, steak, anything off the barbecue. That's a true cowboy. All Jeremy Renner wanted to have was lemon ginger shots all day. Find Eating Wild now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. So speaking of like waters, so where, where, where do you primarily focus your, your musky fishing? I know uh, you, you gave us some indication in, in your in your bio, but why don't you explain to us uh, or to the listeners where like where most of your musky fishing occurs? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with just where I live and what my challenges are because I have to to even find a musky. I have to drive about an hour and a half to have a chance at a fish, and that's not a high high density, high numbers fishery. So I've always been forced to travel. So. It, it depends. And of course, you know, my, my time has changed over the years of my available fishing hours, we'll say. But I've spent the majority of my fishing time has been spent on Georgian Bay, St. Lawrence, Lake St. Clair. Uh, going back you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was the Kawarthas, uh, Nipissing, uh, the Upper French a little bit. I'm really not well versed in the French or Pickle River system. That's one thing I'd like to try to tackle a little bit more. But basically anywhere south of the French River, including Nipissing, um, I fished most areas or, or a lot of the waters. I've really refined that. Something I, I want to talk about at some point too is, is when you have so, only so much time to fish, you really have to dial in and focus okay. on the fishery that you want to learn. Bouncing around a lot is, is not constructive. So I try to make sure that if I'm targeting a fishery, like say the St. Lawrence River, and we'll, I'll fish... 150 miles of the St. Lawrence River that I'm and a lot of things that in the St. Lawrence, for instance, they apply in other places in the St. Lawrence. But what I try to do is really dial in, learn what the fish are doing in the spring, learn what they're doing in the summer and learn what they're doing in the fall or even before a freeze up happens. And really focusing on if I'm bouncing around to all these different waters I used to fish, 
I'm not really in tune with the fisheries. So I, that's what I'm doing now is I'm focusing more of my time on a couple of waters. And I think, you know, between St. Lawrence, uh, some portions of Georgian Bay. And uh, I still like to get down to St. Clair just for fun in the fall a little bit, uh, just because there's just so many fish there. Yeah. I, I, Chris, I think I feel like we're doing the same approach. I mean, uh, Nipissing seems to be our our uh, our area of focus last season. And, of course, we're going to be back there in, oh, geez, week and a half. Oh, man, that's great. <laughs> nice. uh, so that's exciting. Yeah. Um, and, and I fish here and there, too, Davin, um, you know, sometimes in my home waters and sometimes we'll get up Ottawa Way or the St. Lawrence and stuff. But uh, I hear what you're saying. It's just – it's just, I don't know, like, it's a struggle, right? Because, like, especially as show hosts, Chris, like, we want to get out there and see what's out there, and you, you want to you wanna light the world on fire. But, you know, I think, Davin, you're, 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 you're prescribing something that's very prudent, and that is, you know, drill down on, on a water system and, and see if you can figure out some patterns. And uh, it's hard to know, you know, it's hard to, to strike a balance there, you know? Yeah. Get, you want to go everywhere. Yeah, get, get to know something intimately. Yeah. And once you have that, you'll see success go up. And, and, and a lot of these fisheries I speak of are they're low density trophy fisheries. Mm. That, yeah. You know, it takes a lot, a lot of time, frankly, to, you know, learn the so, you know, so, nuances and think what's going on. Once you have it figured out, you, you're, you figure out you don't have it figured out. So, so Davin, is that, was that like part of your strategy um, because of your scheduling limitations uh, or you actually strategically want to focus uh, less uh, uh, amount of fishing, but more concentrated on your planning and, and being as efficient as possible based on, you know, picking the, the, the right context of the, of a period where you think you have the highest catch possibilities and trying to focus your moments where you're going to increase your catch rate. And that's your strategy as opposed to, I just can't get out there uh, because I'm so damn busy. And when I do, you know, I, I can only go, you know, once, like I have to be as efficient as possible. I just kind of try to understand if it's, it's a strategy or just based on your, your schedule. No, it's a good question. And I think you're, you're mostly accurate there. So to, to put it in perspective, I, I used to fish 40, sometimes even before I had kids, 40, 50 days for muskies, maybe in a really busy year. Uh, I'm now down to about 20, 20 and change maybe. Um, and that's a, that's a, that's a life balance thing. But for what it really comes down to, it's all about time management, managing my time best to put myself in the best place at the right time to catch the biggest fish possible. Really, really basically, that's what it comes down to. And that's one of the reasons why I've had to focus in on, you know, planning fish spots and learning those spots so that I'm not running around all the time chasing my tail. I'm really able to dial into a fishery, see changes for the, the good or the bad. And react to those or respond to those. If I'm if if I'm just showing up at a spot and fishing it two or three days a year, yeah, I'm, yeah, I might, I might get lucky and get a good fish, but I'm I'm never gonna really gain any in depth knowledge on that water. And I think knowledge and time management are two of the biggest factors for success. I, I gotta tell you, Chris, uh, what I hear from it, speaking to some of the great anglers in the community, what I hear more and more is exactly what Davin said, and that is like. Again, we're looking for the fish. We're looking for big fish, trophy fish, and you know it's about trying to hit that sweet spot. We none of us can be on the water, like you know, unless you're a guide. But I mean, you've got to take efficient use of your time. And like maybe this is a good segue, Chris, to get into um, some of the 
planning and parameters of the bio that Davin said about basically how to how to hit these sweet spots on, on these um, on these water systems to make sure you optimize your chance to have a trophy fish in the boat. Uh, Davin, you talked about if that's okay, Chris. Are you good with that? Uh, I completely agree. I think uh, yeah. that's something that you and I always talk about on this podcast, uh, mm-hmm. Davin. We always talk about the planning. And how much actual fun the planning is part of the trip as well. So doing your due diligence on the water that you're going to go to and studying uh, all the data you can find, that's part of the trip process. You know, that's where you get the goosebumps before you even get on the water. So Frank and I always love that component of the, of the trip. And, you know, that pairs well with what you're talking about in terms of trying to be as efficient as possible. You can't be efficient if you don't know anything about where you're going. Uh, it's just a guessing game and you're lucky. But... So Frank, I, you know, I just wanted to get that off my chest, but yeah. you, you're completely right. I, I think it's a perfect segue. Okay, so let's talk about Davin. You had mentioned uh, uh, forecasting where weather is concerned, where uh, weather-driven fish patterns, activity levels, and things like uh, lunar, uh, lunar lunacy, as you wrote. But uh, you know, that's a pretty good way to, to to describe it. But why don't you speak uh, for a bit, if you will, about how you approach planning for these trips and taking into consideration, I'm sure the things that I just mentioned are principal drivers for when, when, where, and how, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And, and the research or, you know, digging into as much information you can about the water body you're going to is absolutely critical. That's, that's the first, that's the first thing you need to be doing is, is checking all the resources out there. Um, you know, Google earth is, is great now too. You can actually find shoals and sandbars and stuff from, Google Earth the imagery, um, and these are things are all going to give you some some key starting points. Um, I, I'll backtrack a little bit. One thing I want to talk about when, when planning and information that's available these days, fishermen generally are, are much more tight lipped now because of what what the internet has done. The, the message forums, and they're even becoming quieter nowadays too, where people are hesitant to share information because it gets out so quickly. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the work you. Stuff you have to research and find is going to be thinking outside the box a little bit, and that's that's looking at maps and, and imagery, um, and anything, any tool that's available for you to use, um, by all means use it. But I like to I like to always go back um, if you can go back twenty five years now to to Muskie Hunter magazine. When Muskie Hunter magazine was going in those years, that was the real way of of sharing information on water bodies, and people were willing to talk. And you can find a lot of gems going through some of the older articles in, in Muskie Hunter and applying things that they were doing 25 years ago to today. So that's one of the first places I start. I go back to my library and I, and I look at old articles. I remember something about this water body or this water body. Uh, that kind of disappeared. Um, it got going really good around 2000 with Esox Angler, which is another magazine that uh, put up really good information, um, shared a lot of really advanced stuff. But then that disappeared as well. And, and now we don't even have Muskie Hunter magazine, but that old stuff, it's a gold mine. If you can find some of those old articles, old publications, uh, absolute gold mine of material. So start, start there, learn all you can find all your resources. And, and a lot of about being successful is being resourceful is, is investing that time up front so that when you get to where you're going, you have a game plan already. You have a bunch of spots in mind. You know a little bit about the water depth. You know the clarity of the water. That's water clarity is extremely important. You have to know that before you go. You have to know what the photic zone is. You have to know that because that's going to drive where the weeds are going to be. That's going to drive where the the fish are going to set up. 
especially in a stained water, it changes the level of fish are holding off structure as well, especially the active fish. So learning about that, learning about the, you know, the water temperature, um, you know, is it, is it a, a, a trout lake? It's clear. It doesn't warm up as much. Um, these are all things that, and, and, and I know a lot of us, most of us are probably doing this work, but you, you can never do enough. Photic zone. What does that mean? So photic zone is a really interesting one. This, um, so it's the depth that light penetrates to in the water. Mm. And this is key because that will be the bearing. So it's kind of that, that general photic zone will drive the depth that weeds will grow at. So oh. I'll give, I'll give you an example. Oh, interesting. So okay. You're fishing a weedy stained, stainless lake like the Corthus, somewhere in the Corthus. And you, uh, to establish the photic zone, first of all, I guess you need to use what's called a secchi disc. And what it is, it's a, Picture a pale lid that's it's got four quadrants on it, two painted black and two painted white. And you may have seen some of this before, but we we have these in our boats. And what we would do is you drop it, it'd be weighted, so you drop it down and you determine at what depth that those colors merged into a blur. You can no longer distinguish the black from the white. And that's that's your depth of light penetration. Or sorry, that's that's right, your secchi depth. That's the water clarity that we think of visibility is, let's say in the Corthus is 12, or sorry, 10 feet. But we know that the weeds in the Corthus, depending on the lake, can be growing 15, 16, 17 feet of water or more. So what you do, rough, this is a very rough, and this goes back to Dick Pearson. I didn't invent this. This is actually something I got off uh, from Dick, Pier Dick Pearson, is taking that secchi depth and multiplying it by about 1.6, and that'll give you your photic zone. So if you're getting a secchi depth reading of 10 feet, you multiply by 1.6, now you have, you have 16 foot depth. That's roughly your depth of light penetration. So that determines a lot of the weed growth, but that also determines the depth that fish will be sitting off suspended off structure. Active fish will be just up below that. And you know, then don't run your baits below 16 feet in that case, if you're trolling for active fish. Now, if you're dredging the bottom, you know, it makes perfect sense. You want to get a bait really low and hoping you, you know, pool a fish. But if you're looking for active suspended fish, they're going to be just below that depth of light penetration because the fish have eyes on top of their head. They're looking up, they're watching their prey from below and they're moving up to get their, their prey. And in our case, we hope that that prey is, is your bait. Devin, I wonder like Chris, I'm thinking about the Niagara river and, uh, the clarity, like, yeah, it's gin clear as I'm sure we all know. And what I see on the primary bottom is, we see weeds that grow and because of the current are almost immediately sideways. They don't come like they don't seem like tall weeds, but there are quite a few of them there. So mm -hmm. does that, does that gel with what you're saying, Davin? Like the only weeds that I see are vertical that we have good weed beds where I fish on the Niagara are sort of up on, um, uh, on, uh, you know, on, 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 uh, shelves and stuff. Yes. But the main river is it because the light's penetrating right down to the bottom that those weeds don't have to seek the light and they're not growing to the top? Yeah, and the water's so clear there most times. Right? Yeah. That, yeah, there's, those green leaves are, are taking in the light they need, even if they're knocked over, bent over yeah. flat. Okay. Yeah. But it's so, so cool. The, hell... the, the photic zone there is very, very tough to establish because you can see down, I don't know, can you see down 30 feet some days? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah it's, it, it's, it's tough to find 30 feet if you're not uh, at the Thompson's Hole section near the bridges. <laughs> But yeah, you can absolutely see. I mean, on some days you see you just see everything, and it's like, okay, where do you put your bait? Yeah, so <laughs> where do you put your bait? Do you drag your bait on the bottom? 
Yeah. So the problem, the thing there is bottom composition is going to be the biggest driver in those current systems as to what holds weeds and what doesn't. It's not so much the light penetration. Right. Interesting. Okay. So, so just to recap then, Davin, it's the, it's the, where the, where the, the light penetrates and the, the water becomes blurred and you can no longer see it's just below that threshold where you will find the suspended fish. Yeah. So yeah. So you have your secchi depth. Say say the visibility. Your visibility is ten feet. Um, mul- multiply that by, for sake of ease, you could say one point five. And mm-hmm. now you figure out okay, light's penetrating fifteen feet down, mm-hmm. give or take. Um, so the fish, some of the fish are actively out suspending, feeding at more open water. Can use that as an edge. And we're going to talk about Dick Pearson again. He always talks about the importance of edges. And we could talk about so many different edges in, in fishing, but that's one of those edges that's in, in open water you may not think of. Um, and that's a light, light penetration so that the muskies will be out at that depth uh, feeding up. It's, it's funny you, you mentioned edges. I, I'll never forget listening to a, 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 a video with Bob Azumi, and he was talking about night fishing, and he was talking about how you fish the edge of the shadow of the dock from the moon. So just look at shadows on the water and fish that edge line at night and you'll be successful or you'll have, you know, so I I always remember that. And that just, you know, like you're talking about, look for the edges. It's really, really interesting. That that is, that's an interesting look at it too, or take on that for sure. So thinking of this as a structure is such like Chris, like I, I, I don't think I've ever really heard it being put like that. That is so cool. No. So that right away, if you can make this determination, you have an amazing starting point probably on any body of water. Yeah, absolutely. If you're a troller trying to cut water, and I'll say if you're learning new water, trolling is the best way to learn to fish it. That's your starting point. You give you, you right. yourself a depth. You're in the game right away. Now, there's times a year, like very early in the season, those fish will suspend a little bit higher. Fish are out moving around. They're just coming off the spawn. And you've heard a lot of talk in the recent years about open water fishing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, deep water, but fishing really shallow, running your baits really high. Um, but I, I'm, I'm talking overall, making a kind of a very general statement, but at least you have a starting point. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that you're using some sort of calculation. It's a sensible, comprehensive calculation rather than just saying, I'm going to run my. I'm going to burn this bucktail in 50 feet of water, uh, two feet below the surface. Okay. Well, maybe you're going to get a fish here and there, but those fish are probably even suspended are probably just below that, that light basement layer. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. 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 Yeah, That is so cool, Chris. Oh my God. I wish I, I wish I wasn't fishing the Niagara this afternoon. I wish I was. uh... (laughs) (laughs) At least I'm fishing, right? Yeah. I'm going to run out after this show and, uh, get on the water but uh man is that ever cool Davin? that is so neat that's great info yeah. oh man i, I don't think i've uh, ever heard that term the fotex uh, zone in terms of musky uh, like how to apply that in the musky zone musky fishing that's that's going to be great for the listeners to pick up yeah that's that's something i i read or was published 20 years ago by i say dick pearson i mean this this, this guy way ahead of his time and he he, st- he still is in my opinion and it all of, all of this stuff, it's all relevant still, too. Yeah. I mean, just Gavin, just what you said about, like, everything makes sense, Chris. Like, getting into those old musky hunter magazines because nobody, you know, if you were if you were lucky enough to be put in a magazine back in the day, because that was really a, a thing of, 
of status and intrigue because all we had was mus- uh, was magazines and TVs pretty much. We didn't have the age of instant information. So, yeah, I mean, A, how many people are reading these magazines and studying? And B, you know, who cares if you spell, you, you spill a secret or two because it's not instant information. You know what I mean? Like uh, someone gets on Facebook and, and you know, or, or a, a TV host post, uh, does a – an episode where they catch a giant fish and you can see the markers behind them. And then the next day that spot is lit up, but that didn't happen back then. Right. Nope. It was the muskander was so good. Some of the articles they were publishing back then actually showed tracking studies, fish movements across some of the, the flowages or wherever the work was being done. So you could actually, you'd actually learn and see spots right away where fish are or multiple fish are utilizing. Like that's invaluable. Absolutely. That sounds so cool. Amazing. So that that's that's something, uh, Davin, that you you're obviously you can't determine that when you're not on the water, correct? Sorry, I can't determine what. Sorry, you can't determine that that determine sorry that light zone when you're not on the water. So no, that's that's you right. Have you, have to, you, you have to be out there, and that's so I'm just going to say like so. What are some of the other key planning components that that allow you to be as efficient as you are? Um, that you do before you go to the body of water that you've targeted. Oh, so yeah, it's a great, it's a great discussion, and we could drill right into this one. Uh, first thing first, I'll lay, I'll lay out how I, I look at my fishing time these days. Is I have a handful of trips that I can do each each year, and I try to make sure that I'm fishing for at least four calendar days of, of that vacation, whether it's a, a fishing trip or with family and friends as well. I try to make sure I have four days and I like it to be continuous. And the reason I do that is because I know even on those low density waters that I give myself an opportunity to find a feeding window, whether it's a 12 hour window, a 24 hour window, That's something Georgian Bay is famous for is, you know, not showing you a fish for three days and then showing you three fish in the next day. Mm. Um, but I want to make sure I'm there on a day when the fish are moving. And I figured doing a four day trip at minimum gives me the absolute best shot. Now, Hundred percent. Yeah, and if you look at I, a guy like Al Linder once said, and I, I I always come back to what others have stated, and he put it really simply. And there's no science behind this. Um, we all know muskies don't feed every day, but let's look at it really simply. You have seven days in a week, and it'd be tough to prove this one wrong or right. But the way I look at it is, you have one day where you're really not going to see a fish. The fishing is going to be horrible. Um, it's just not happening for you. But maybe there's one day in that seven that the fishing is unreal. Of course, you want to be there on those days. And you, there's a lot, there's, there's things you can do to give it up the odds for sure. Um, and then you have, the other days are all somewhere in between. Somewhere you have a peak bite window. But I know with four days, we may have a trip where we have one or two really good days and a couple days that are not so bad. Or we might have three days that are crap, but then we have a good day in the end. I, we've had four day trips where we catch a 53 incher. Um, literally the last trolling pass or the last weed bed we're casting of the entire trip. Well, we've all that. <laughs> I wonder what that feels like, Chris. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you if you're if you're done, Devin. I was going to jump in, but if you want to keep going, oh, I'm listening. Well, well, I, I can I, as far as I mean, ask away. But I was just going to say, as far as, as planning these trips, that's that's the constraints I have, and that's why I do these, these four day trips, minimum four day trips. Um, well, I I think that 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 is something that everybody. No, like experience experiences, Frank, how many times have we been on the water where in that four or five day window, let's say the four day window, 
Um, nothing happens except for one day. And mm-hmm. just something simple by identifying that you give yourself a time frame or parameter of four days is, is I think, a really smart move because, you know, you might ha- be talking to your friend and you might be saying, okay, well, I only got two days here. Should we do it? But I got four days a couple of weeks later. Let's move it to the four days because we've been in so many of these windows where we're out for four days. And as you said, nothing happens for maybe three of them. And it's the last day something happens, but you're, you're almost guaranteeing one bite window. And we all know that when the, when the window is on, it's, it's mayhem for 45 minutes or whatever it is. And that's your opportunity. And you're going to have one of those in those four days. So I think it's a really smart uh, decision to plan on a four day window. So Chris, our like our last trip to Sewell was very much like that. Remember, we hit yeah. a nice, you hit a nice fish, you hit a nice fish within fifteen minutes of us launching. And then we yeah. went a long stretch with maybe like one or two tiny fish and nothing too crazy. And then giant monster, like Davin said, right in the last like hour of the trip. But like uh, even more so, I think of our, our our trips in the opener, which you know, unfortunately, you're not here for, uh, but will be soon. Um, but like two of the last three years, especially three years ago, zero fish day one, six fish day two, zero fish day three. And then the year, uh, so last year we were, uh, I think one or two on the first day and again, like five day two and then zero day three. So, um, this year everything was shit. We only got a few fish, but, um, on opener, we, we absolutely see those patterns. We're fishing three days instead of four, but, you know what? Sometimes you can only get three days, and and then you you take what you can get. But man, you know, four or five days is a is an absolute uh, absolutely the sweet spot, I would say. And um, we've lived that, Davin. So I mean, what you're saying makes all the sense in the world to us. I'm sure it does to the listeners as well. Yeah, and I, and I've listened to guides on your show say that you know, book for four or five days a week, whatever it is, you're going to get a shot at a big fish. Yeah, simple as that. Well, well, I would if I I probably don't keep the records that you obviously keep in terms of logging your fish. But if I go back, Frank, and I'm sure if you go back and you count how many muskies you've caught on a one outing trip where you just went out for the afternoon and came back, I bet you there it's the, it's a very low percentage. Most of the muskies are caught on your trips where you're in a three, four day span. And you know, that says it all right there. Yeah. And like, if I look at our home waters, Chris, like we, I had one day, in the last, I don't know how many years, where we, you know, Attila and I lit up four fish in a half hour. And that's never happened to us again. I, I, I'm i trying to think if I even had a two fish day on the Niagara in recent memory, and I don't think I have. Usually it's a zero fish day. But, you know, like like we're saying, guys, I mean, I'm it's my backyard, so I don't plan a four-day trip. I go out when I yeah. can here and there. So, I mean, I understand I'm taking a shot in the dark and all that stuff. Um, nor do I want to commit to, you know, four, four eight hour days. No, well, I'm just trying to, to illustrate yeah. the, po- the point that yeah. these short little outings usually aren't as, aren't that productive. And if they are, it's because you got lucky. But, you know, as, as, uh, Davin pointed out, when you have that window of four days, you're gonna, you're, you're going to encounter one bite window and that's all you need. You have to be ready for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's the law of averages for sure. Yeah. If, I, so, like, so Okay. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I was thinking of your, your day trips, for instance, um, to the Niagara. You go to the Niagara 10 times for four hours. So you, you log 40 hours. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say you get three or four fish in those 40 hours. That can happen. You're just going to have a lot of days where you don't catch anything. 
But then yeah. if you have a 40 trip of four 10 hour days or you know, four 10 hour days, 40 hours, and you have that one day where you get three or four fish, you kind of average out the same, but um, it's, it's a different mentality or way of looking at it. And I, I think just averaging it out is, is kind of really the, the thought process there. So, so Davin, if you, if you go one step up from this now and you've, you've, you've determined your four day window, you've determined the body of water that you're going to fish. Are you planning your time on the water based on lunar events and, and weather windows? Um, and you're trying to, again, repeat that, um, rhythm or that idea of efficiency or, or when you go, are you blasting like 10, 12 hours, regardless every day, all four days you're there? Uh, okay. Good question. Two, two very different approaches. When I, if I'm going on one of my four day trips, for instance, I am, I know the season I am, is it spring? Is it summer? Is it fall? And what should, what should water temperatures, the first question I always ask myself, what are water temperatures and what should they be doing? In the spring, there should be a slow warm up of water temperature. That's a normal process. You've got your summer peak and things kind of bounce around a little bit around there. But you got your summer peak and then you got your fall or your cooling where your water should be cooling down. And that's, again, a normal process. That's what the fish are expecting. And when you get those conditions, uh, I would say those are extremely favorable. So what I want to look at when I'm going on, say I'm going late June, I'm heading to Georgian Bay. I want to know what this, the temperatures have been all spring. I call it, it's what I call it, and it's not my term, but it's called hindcasting, where I'm actually looking back and trying to look at the weather that has occurred week, two weeks, even months back when you look at, has it been an early spring, early spawn, or is it a late spring, late spawn? But when I'm dialing in on a trip or approaching my trip, I, I'm definitely looking back on you know the weather pattern of the last week, what's been happening, what will they have done to water temperatures, and translating what water temperature is doing to what the fish should be and what I expect the fish to be doing. And that gives me the, the first clue as to where I need to be starting as far as location, technique, and, and you know, how aggressively I fish. Uh, there's what I'm finding now with, with the trips I go on. I'm no longer doing 12, 14, 15 hour days anymore. I'm hitting the brakes quite a bit. I, if I'm, if nothing's going on, I'll try to go out and fish certain periods of the day based on what the weather is doing and to some extent the moon and maybe based on what I saw yesterday occurring at the same time or just kind of what might be happening. But our trips now, we take a lot of breaks and, I, and maybe it's because we're getting a little bit older, but what I'm finding is every time I take a break, I hit pause and come back to the cabin, hotel, whatever it is we're staying at, is I'm resetting my day. I'm resetting my expectations. I'm, I'm giving myself a mental break, but I'm recharged to the point where I feel like I'm going out and starting all over and starting fresh again. And sometimes that mindset or taking that break uh, can mean the difference between catching a fish that hits both sides on a figure eight or even getting a fish to a figure eight and, and nothing at all. And, and I, I find by fishing smarter and less hours, we're in the game more than if we're pulling long days where we're just tired and not seeing much or, uh, you know, maybe if we are seeing fish, we might fish 12 hours straight. Sometimes you have those days where the fish just move all day, but those are very rare. I, Long story short, I don't fish on my trips as much as I used to. I might average 10 hours a day, maybe. I think this is maybe a product of age, but it's certainly a product of wisdom that your age has brought you. Um, the 100%. best fishermen I know, yeah, the best fishermen I know, Davin, do this. And even our last trip, my, my buddy Alex, uh, Alex, uh, you know, we had a talk after and he's like, we fish too much. And I'm like, well, I want to fish. And I'm like, you know, bull in a china shop, head down and 
you know, he's like, we should have fished less. And, and he was right, you know, in hindsight. And uh, um, some of the people we fish are just excellent with, with our excellent anglers. And they're sometimes they don't even come out with us because they're just like, you know, this isn't the right time. You guys go, whatever. But, you know, and then that person will go out for an hour or two and, and get a 49-incher and, and come back and have lunch kind of thing. Um, <laughs> I, I think that's definitely the way to go. But, like, I think that's the culmination of a lot of things, especially experience and wisdom. So if you're if you're studying all these factors, it's easy to pick and choose where you think the windows are. And if you're never studying and learning and bettering yourself and just ripping through the water, you're always going to be out there grinding it out. And it's it's really important, especially like getting to the end of the day where, the, you know, that golden hour, which is. You know, when when we say we pick our times, this, this, and that, I mean, barring weather, I think we all pick that. We're always all on that, you know, all of us are on the water for that golden hour. Yeah. You've got to be at your best. Yes, yes. You know? You can't be sunbaked, tired. You have to be that's out right. there, fre- refreshed, I say. Yeah, Chris, that's, I think that's one of the challenges when we go to Sewell, like a place like Sewell. Not so much when we go to Eagle because we can always duck in the lodge, but um, – at Sewell, we're fishing, you know, we're usually, you know, lost in the middle of the lake. I mean, not lost, lost, but like a, in total hunt mode, you know, an hour or whatever from the launch or even more. And we don't get the chance to come in. But, and but, that, but that, to, that but, makes it tough. Yeah. Yeah. But to Devin's point, we do take a lot of breaks. Now, we don't take the break where we have we, we have the ability to, as you say, dock the boat and go rest. We just take breaks on the boat, yeah. uh, whether it's a cigar, whether it's just shooting the ship talking about South Park episodes yeah and and just reset like we've had a few moments and I'm sure Davin will appreciate this where you just lose sight that you're actually fishing get in a conversation you're laughing your asses off you're having a great time and then it hits you like oh we better get ready for this window but that 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 whole exercise there was it was a reset for us uh we just didn't leave the boat what do you think of that Davin I I I whatever it takes to 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 reset things I guess yeah I'm just yeah, it maybe that is just it's the pause to hang out, just put your feet up. But I, I think it's it's really key when you're casting, for instance, for muskies. You want to be casting with confidence. You want to be feeling that every single time you cast, your bait's going to be in front of a fish or you have a chance to get a fish. When you do long days, 10, 12 hours of not seeing anything, and you're just fishing because, hey, I'm here, I, I better fish. That doesn't do a lot for you, and it certainly doesn't prepare you for that one moment or that one opportunity maybe that you get to catch a fish. Fair enough. So things. I, so back to your original question too is what what do I look at in a, in a given day as to planning maybe the start of a trip or even day to day during a trip? Um, I I rely on the weather more than the moon, and I, I'll kind of explain that. But before I get into that, one thing I want to mention: you might think I'm crazy here, but one thing I'm always watching if we're, if we're at a especially when we're at a cabin or somewhere in, in the north where there's there's nature nature's happening, there's activity, different levels of activity with, with what's going on in the the woods or the water around you as one of the most basic things that I've come to believe. And I, I swear by this and I may sound crazy here, but when I get up in the morning and I look out the window or I go to the, the deck of the, the cottage and I don't see squirrels, I don't hear squirrels. The birds aren't making any noise. Nothing's moving. I'm, I have no interest in making any movement towards getting on the boat. The wow. very, it's a very simple thing. Nature doesn't all respond at the same time, but there's there's things that are happening that I can't even explain these things, but that change the activity levels of, of nature, not just fish or the animals, but 
if I wake up in the morning and I see, I see a muskrat swimming across or an otter or um, the turtles are up or the chipmunks are, things are just firing, I will put the speed on to get on the water and get, get on as quick as I can and get on my favorite spots. That makes sense. I mean, hunters pay attention to the lunar uh, behavior every bit as much as us anglers do. Um, so it's all, like you said, it's all tied in. So that makes, it makes sense. I don't think that's crazy at all. Yeah. I just look at what, if I'm driving somewhere locally to fish the St. Clair or wherever, I watch what the cows are doing. If the cows are laying down the field, I know two things. One is there's not going to be a good bite when we get there. And if we're going to catch a fish, we're going to have to be slow and methodical and really kind of squeeze the water and give ourselves the best chance. So, so, I mean, it begs the question and I have to ask it. The cow's laying on is laying down. Why does that mean the fish are not going to bite? So I so I think that's that's weather driven, and that's those are those are typically going to be post frontal conditions. Um, you get those crisp blue sky days where you know, some white big white fluffy clouds that are, uh, and you know day was a north wind or a northwest wind, and it's a cool wind. It's you know summertime high at twenty. There's been a cold front move through in the last day or so. Um, you will see the animals responding to that. And that's when the cows will be laying in the corner of the field to be laying down. Um, they're not up, they're not moving. You get them before the front passes through, or even when you got a sort of stable conditions or prefrontal conditions, you'll see those animals up moving, feeding. Um, that was like a percentage. If there's a field of a hundred cattle and you know, 80 of them are standing up 20 or down, that might be a, you know, 75, 80% type activity level at that point for me. If I see the majority of them laying down, I know it's going to be tougher. If I see them all lying down, you're in it really tough. And that's played out time and time again. I mean, if I've had a discussion probably a hundred times with 50 different people on, on the way fishing over the years. And it, that's always one of my starting points is just observing depending on fishing. It could be cows or it could be squirrels and birds. Can it be sheep? My neighbor just bought like 50 head of sheep. And uh, if I just can go over to his house and just look and see what the sheep are doing, I'm freaking pretty happy about that. Absolutely. Try try seeing that. I, I don't see a lot of sheep around here, but it, it serves a reason. So, yeah. Well, if I see them lying down, I'm going to yell and scream and wave my arms until they all get up, and then I'm going to jump in the boat. Perfect. <laughs> so, so <laughs> that's one way. So, 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 Devin, have you correlated this with your fishing? So, like, you've, you had this proof in the pudding where you, you have gone on the water – in these situations and it's been tough days for you. And then you find that when things are more active and the animals are just flying around and, and moving that when you're on the water, you feel like you're more productive. That's you, you've established that. Yeah, absolutely. Time and time again, yeah, there's, there's no, there's absolutely no question. Amazing. Um, well, I know, but I will say this, that there's days where nothing's happening, literally nothing is happening, but then all of a sudden you'll get a wind shift early evening or, or something that the, the the light penetration changes from the, the cloud cover. Something very small changes. And it's and I'm not even tying this to a moon. But something changes. Wind might shift from the southwest to the north real quick, or a breeze even. And boom, you get a fish because you're on the right spot. And that fish was just willing to move for that brief moment. So look for fish you got. Yeah, when you look at your forecast in the morning, you get up, or even the day before. That's one thing to look for is look for it if the forecasts are anticipating a, a wind shift. Uh, say you have an east wind and it's going to go to southwest, or you have a west wind, it's going to shift to northeast. You want to be on the water that hour so that wind makes that that switch around, because that might be your only wind. I, I think, Frank, these are the conversations where you realize, like, I realize what a dumb angler I am. Like, I fish yeah, my whole too. life, 
And I, and I, I, Davin, I've been fishing since I was a little kid and it's been my life, but I don't, I don't have that type of knowledge that you talk about. And I'm like, thank God we're doing this podcast because this is how we're learning, Frank. Guys like Davin who just <laughs> clearly have the scientific mind and, and, the, and the, the instinct to pick these type of things up. And I'm sure you've learned from other people and mentors, but uh, these are like, I picked up a few things today that are, go- I oh, think yeah. are going to really help us uh, down the road, especially the, the Fotec zone and, the, and the, just watching the behavior of the environment in general. Well, Chris, I was going to say uh, like pretty much the same thing, but like after 133 episodes, you know, we're hearing things for the first time in this show and it always blows my mind when we do it. Like think of the people we've had on the show, like mm-hmm. pretty much everybody that Davin has mentioned as references and, and mentors, everyone's been on this show and like we're hearing this stuff for the first time. So this is really the beauty. This is why we started this show, Chris. Like let's remind yeah. the viewers, we, we yeah. never gave a single shit about who was listening to this show. We did it just to become better anglers, to fool people into thinking we had a show to tell us how to get better <laughs> at musky anglers so we can go catch fish. Uh, you know, we weren't, we were supposed to sell beer. We weren't supposed to get all these downloads. We certainly Certainly, weren't supposed to be uh, working with the Fishing Canada show. I'm still not sure how that happened, but uh, it. You know what? As it turns out, the show is just feeding us and feeding us amazing guests. And I think now, Chris, you're starting to get an, a, an idea of why I've I've been trying so hard to get Davin on the show and why a lot of people have been po- pointing his way and saying, you know, how come he hasn't been on? What an awesome part one. Part two is going to drop next week with Davin Heinbuck. Wealth and knowledge gets even better. So stay tuned. That's going to drop next week. And for beer drinkers, don't forget to go to uglypikebrewing.com. You can order online, get the beer delivered right to your house, or check out our interactive map where you can go and check out icons for stores near you. Just click on the beer retailers tab on our website. Ugly, uglypikebrewing.com and for you drinkers out there you know if you don't love a pilsner try this out the ibu the bitterness scale is 15 so just above a lager it's totally crisp doesn't finish with a funk finishes with a citrus crisp dynamite for the summer hope you guys check it out thanks again for listening Ugly Pike.